Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're asking, what would George do? Romero, that is. George Romero, the man behind the modern zombie. Because our guest this week is Daniel Kraus, the author bringing closure to George's lifelong vision of the zombie uprising. What began all the way back in 1968 with Romero's Night of the Living Dead concludes over half a century later in Daniel's novel, The Living Dead. It's a magnum opus of zombie fiction, taking us through the weeks, months and years following the fall of humanity. Daniel talks about how he came to be the person entrusted with Romero's legacy, their strange, posthumous collaboration and what it felt like to be let loose in the master's sandbox. We also talk zombie ethics, what the undead stand for in our current society, and I crowbar in my own personal theory about zombie media being mind control for the masses. Always take my chances. (laughs) In a period when the zombie seems to have fallen from favour, and we all await the final stuttering halt of the Walking Dead TV show, The Living Dead is the book that could redeem the undead, in more ways than one. So, come with me to the ruins of Pittsburgh, where 50 years ago a man with a camera started a mythology that will never, ever die. Let's talk scared. Well, Daniel, hi, and a huge welcome to Talking Scared. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Not at all. How are, how are things for you? How are you? Where are you, Mom? Well, I'm in Chicago. Uh, so things are fine, as, you know, I think as far as, like, COVID goes, it's among the finer states to be in, but, you know, it's all relative. Nothing's better than fine, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, we've just done the thing here like an hour ago where they announced our our current travel rules and I found out I can't go on holiday and I had, about, I had like a 15-minute tantrum yeah. and I remembered that people have real problems and calm myself down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fine is kind of all we can hope for, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to talk about a lot of horrible shit, so let's at least start positively. Sure. Um, I, I am delighted to have you on the show, particularly delighted, firstly, because I thoroughly enjoyed your novel. And I have lots and lots and lots to ask you about it. Um, but also because you kind of come accompanied by the spectral presence of an sort of undisputed icon mm-hmm. of horror, George Romero. Yeah. To explain for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, we're kind of here to discuss your your 2020 novel, um, The Living Dead, which is coming out in paperback soon. I believe it's the 8th of September from Tor. Is that right? In the US anyway, yeah. Right, okay. Um, I will look up the UK dates and put that in the show notes and stuff. It's kind of a magnum opus of, of, of zombie lore, really, that you and George collaborated on, though that collaboration is more unusual and more complex than most co-authored novels because, sadly, he'd, he'd passed. And I, I imagine King and Straub had it easy compared to you. Well, I guess so. There are challenges to any collaboration I've done a few now um, <laughs> when you have uh, a living collaborator, I think there's more uh, active types of discussions or even, you know, arguments about where things would go. Uh, my challenge was having those arguments uh, with myself, like trying to always know as best as I could where George would want to go. And then um, on occasion, because it was, you know, inevitably going to be half my book to challenge those assumptions too. Like I always had to be aware of that there are two parties here and they're both going to have a viewpoint. And um, uh, I was going to try to honor both of them. And then, you know, in a tiebreaker situation, I always, I always went with what I thought George would do. Well, that's going to lead into my first question, actually. Before I get to that, though, I always ask authors to introduce their books. And, you know, in your case, if it's okay, I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to ask you to give us a brief idea of what The Living Dead is about. Mm-hmm. I mean, people probably guess it's zombies. Um, but I'm also going to ask you to tell us how you came to be the person responsible for curating George Romero's final yeah. vision of the zombie apocalypse, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, I know it's a story you've told a lot of times, so... Um, apologies, but I think it's kind of key to the conversation, really. Yeah, it is. Tell us about the book and how it came to be. Well, the book itself is, as you said, kind of 
George's final word on zombies. Uh, and it it is divided into three sections. Um, the, the first uh, takes place over about the first two weeks of the zombie uprising. And the second takes place over the next, I think it's 14 years. Uh, and it's uh, ironically the, 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 the shortest section because that by design, that was sort of the section in which you could plug all the movies. So there's almost a, a way to work the movies into the reading experience. You could read the first section of the book, stop, watch all six Romero zombie movies, and then continue on to the third section, which takes place uh, some 15 years into the future um, after the zombie uprising. And it really just takes place over a single day. Within that slightly odd structure, it's relatively straightforward in the sense that it, there's a number of characters that are spread across the country. And it does limit itself to America. This was very much, I think, a book about America. Uh, so it has various American characters spread across the country in the way of something like The Stand or, or something of that sort. And then their you know, paths may or may not cross far into the future. Um, and it really tries to take uh, everything that that George laid out for zombies and takes them to their logical conclusion. Some of those conclusions were um, laid down by George himself in notes that he left. And others of them, and this is fully explained in the long author's note to the book, um, a lot of them were were me just doing deep dives on Romero, very deep dives and trying to just play it out. Like if, if this book goes 15 years in the future and we know he made six movies, we have those six points of reference. What can we learn from movies one through six that we can apply to book seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. So we could sort of stretch it out into the future. So that's, that's this kind of brief summary of the book. Obviously I'm not going into, who the characters are here, but I will say that one of the characters is a zombie. And one of the things that George did write into the, the narrative was a zombie point of view, which is fairly unique for him. Mm -hmm. And so that was interesting to play with. There's a zombie who's kind of the through line through the whole, the whole story. Uh, now, as far as how I got involved with it, it was, you know, one of those, I mean, once in a lifetime, well, you, well, I mean, typically it'd be zero in a lifetime, but, you know, one of those things where George was my favorite artist of any sort. Night Living Dead was the first film I remember ever seeing. It probably wasn't the first film I saw. I assume I saw some Disney movies in there or something as a kid. But it's the first movie I, I, I viscerally remember watching. Um, I was probably five years old or something like that. And my mom was a big horror fan. So George Romero and also Rod Serling were were two artists that from a very, very young age, you know, again, five or six years old, really guided how I saw the world and ultimately taught me about life and, and especially art and metaphor and all those things. And uh, they, they were both, you know, I'm very lucky in that they were both very progressive thinkers. And I don't think there's two better artists I could have gotten roped into at that age. So anyway, uh, what eventually happened was George passed away, and then about a month or so later, I get a call from his manager, who I who I know, but hadn't spoken to in a, in a good decade. He says, "Listen, I'm I'm sitting here with George's wife Suzanne, and we're going through some of the the, the material he was working on at his death, and there's this novel that he'd been working on, and um, and I sort of knew this. I sort of." remembered occasionally in an interview he would make a reference to it um so i i was aware that this was a thing but it certainly wasn't something he talked about a lot and wasn't the top of my mind either uh but he said look we uh we were wondering if you would like to take a stab at finishing it and it was a you know mind-blowing moment and still is hard to wrap my head around the idea that you know my origin story is Night of the Living Dead. Like I'm not, I'm not doing any kind of art without Night of the Living Dead, and to be a part of sort of finishing the arc that that movie start started is hard to believe. Um, and so I, I, you know, I approached the book with extreme seriousness. 
you know, I treated it as if it were uh, the remains of some sort of <laughs> holy text, you know, uh, like it was uh, the, sh- the dead sea shrouds <laughs> or something. And uh, because the material that he left wasn't, it wasn't like he wrote half the book and stopped. The material was much patchier than that. He had a, a bunch in the, the beginning that he wrote. He had various other material that belonged somewhere in the middle and some stuff at the very end. And so my job was much more complex than just picking up the story. It was building bridges between all these um, kind of islands that he had created and doing it in a way that felt smooth and logical. And then also, of course, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, we're philosophically united in a way that I think makes sense and or, or, or is at least my interpretation of where George might have been going with the whole zombie thing based on a lot of clues. And at, at the end of the day, it's just my interpretation. But, you know, I feel pretty good about the information I dug up and where I went with it. I mean, that's an incredible story, as you say. I'm mean, having the chance to finish a narrative arc that was a primal moment for you. That That's an incredible story. But in horror terms, it's kind of like something of the magnitude of, of finishing Dickens's Edwin Drood. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's because it's something that's so totemic yeah. in the in, in 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 20th century horror and ongoing. And obviously as as delighted as you must have been, as reverential as you must have felt going in, to what degree does George and his vision kind of loom over the living dead? Did you feel free to create and innovate in this sandbox or was all the established law a mm-hmm. bit of a millstone around your neck? Well, it, it definitely, uh, like, like it felt good. I love, I love limitations in writing. You know, I think uh, whether it's story limitations or language limitations or something in the art that narrows your options, I find really helpful to writing. It forces you to do new things. So, you know, the fact that we had this established Romero universe, you know, it, it did pre- present certain guidelines that I had to work within, and that created all sorts of challenges. It created uh, timeline challenges and um, all, all sorts of things, but those were, those were all really fun to deal with. Even the, the pattern of w- which we dug up Romero's writing on this thing was chaotic. Like I would write for a while and then I would be contacted that more pages were found from Romero and I would have to reverse course because something, you know, at one point found these, these notes of his and I was hundreds of pages into the book and these notes, some of them fit with what I was doing and some of them no longer fit. And so there are all these challenges where I'd have to say, all right, how can I make this work? Can this character be that character? Can, can those events be transposed to this section because I wanted to, you know, there's a finite number, uh, amount of George's stuff, and I wanted to put as, make sure as much of it got in as possible. So, but yeah, I mean, it, the the entire concept of the thing had a certain amount of pressure to it. Obviously, I, I knew from the start that it was potential that it was a losing proposition in the sense that if it was really good, people would say George Romero's a genius, <laughs> and if it was really bad, it was going to be all my fault. But you know if I have a talent, one of them is to really, really focus and um, to sort of put all that out of mind and to get to work really quickly. There was so much work to do, not just figuring out the the plot, but just pulling together the strands and, you know, interviewing his, his wife and other people to figure out more about him as a, a man and his philosophies and feelings on things. So there was so much to do that I just, dove in like every other project got tossed to the side and I had to convince myself at least for the length of writing of the project that I was I was the right guy to do it now we can all debate whether that's true but I had to I had to puff myself up with some confidence saying all right this is what I've been training for I've been a student of this guy my entire life and now I can turn that you know sort of obsessive analysis hopefully into to something Great, but I'm not writing an you know an academic paper here though. So it did involve, and was going to have to involve a sort of synthesis of analysis, and then just art, for lack of a better term, and um, imagination, and 
there was going to have to be obviously um, a lot of creativity and input from me because there there were you know enormous chunks of the book were missing. So it was a, a totally unique challenge that I I don't think I ever didn't love. Well, that's nice to hear because it'd be a shame if it was a poison chalice. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the afterward, you mentioned that you you were like 400 pages in and you got those notes saying, oh, we've unearthed more stuff. And then you were like, oh, Christ, how do I, yeah. how do I contort what I've got? I mean, I, I'm currently like a bit of a cliche, but writing my first novel. And the other day I got some very brief notes from a, from a fellow writer that suggested I reshape things in a, a relatively trivial way. And it, it, it freaked me out for a week. So I can't imagine having George Romero's tram lines kind of overlay what you've already done that must have been quite the moment <laughs> but as i mentioned in the author's note there were incredible moments of synchronicity too like some of the things that he talked about wanting to do in the book in those notes i had already done on my own like so there we were really on the same page for a lot of stuff well the book goes into some very very unexpected places but when I say unexpected, that could be because I'm no Romero scholar. So I've seen all the films at one time or another. I think I haven't seen Survival of the Dead, but I've seen the rest. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, I was never even sure if they all took place in the same universe, let alone have a coherent chronology, because I didn't realize this thing about the fact that George just ignores the decades in which they're made. And ignores right. the technological differences and stuff. Yes. So yeah, I believe I am right in thinking they all do take place in this one universe with the same chronology, and you're just supposed to ignore the fact that they look different and one's black and white and one's color and stuff. Yeah, like that. basically that's true. Yeah. Right. So in that case, and you kind of hinted at this in the in the intro, but are you writing a book here that is a faithful companion running concurrent to those events in that same world? Or do you see it as a kind of retconned trip back to the start and a, a whole different telling? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I don't see it as a retcon. Um, it was important to me to f fit this into his world. Um, essentially, I, I really do think he had a, a pretty firm handle on what he wanted zombies to be and how he wanted them to act and behave and what they represented. And I didn't want to upset any of that. So anything new that I added to the the zombie lore part of it, I wanted to make sure that it came from him, that any changes I made had some sort of either blatant evidence or my best guess at where, where what he would have done in certain situations, you know, when it comes to sort of the evolution of zombies. So I, I took that, I, I walked very carefully um, there, because you know, generally, if you were right to write a new zombie book today, you know, most people would come up with some new twist on them. You know, this zombie can fly, or this. You know, there's always like a new twist. But, but of course, George wasn't interested in any of that. Uh, you know, he came up with the idea of the modern zombie, and he, damn it, he was going to stick with it, and he didn't want all these bells and whistles. So there's the zombies aren't going to do anything in this book that they don't do in his movies. You know, they're the same exact type of beings, but we do begin to understand them in a different way. I mean, for a start, I'm quite weirdly thrilled by the idea that somewhere in this, this world I've been reading about for the last week, that in these events somewhere unseen by your protagonist, you know, the Monroeville mall mm -hmm. is under attack. Yep. And I love the idea that, you know, they're coming for Barbara in this world. That, 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 I, I get a little thrill from that. Yeah. I love that tying together of things. But my favorite of the Romero dead sequence, I mean, this might be a, a weird thing to say, is, is Land of the Dead. Hmm. Um, because I know it was largely considered a, a bit of a flop, but I love the Big Daddy character, the kind of yeah. semi-sentient zombie. Uh, and... And, and that felt wildly revolutionary when it came out. It almost felt like George had broken the the rules of, of what a zombie is, almost. But that semi-sentience and, and that you know unusual sense of self and being and belonging is something that's at the very bedrock of this novel. And is that something that was always in the pipeline, that kind of evolving zombie? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you really... He did a nice job in the movies of always introducing new edges to the uh, 
to the zombies. You know, really, it was in Day of the Dead with the the, the Bub character that you really started to see um, a zombie capable of mimicry and uh, doing tasks um, by request and not and not hurting the human beings. Um, and then Land of the Dead, we had a, a zombie who's just as smart with Big Daddy, but sort of less benevolent, you know, a little angrier. So, yeah, all that was baked into it. But I think as early as Dawn, he was portraying zombies in a way that was very sympathetic. I, I think all of this stuff, at least back to, to Dawn, was already sort of there. Um, I think generally... Well, I don't think I know that George was on the side of the zombies, basically, when it came to who's the who are the good guys in these stories. Um, that doesn't mean he doesn't have sympathy for the, the human characters. But the, uh, there's a reason I always call it the zombie uprising, because he saw it. That's how George saw it as a, an uprising, a sort of underclass rising up to topple a rotten ruling class. So all this stuff was there. It just it's it's like going over, you know, a book of the Bible or something. You just have to dig, keep watching the movies, keep reading his interviews, keep reading analysis, everything he wrote, whether it was zombie or not, and you start to be able to see patterns and hints and clues and all this material that then you can extrapolate forward and come up with an idea of okay, mm -hmm. where was he going if he would if he was going to take this story 15 years into the future. I think I mired a little bit in the post-Romero zombie. Mm -hmm. I think even though George set the mold, um, and you've kind of continued it, I, I think I find it weirdly not anachronistic. I think I find it weirdly more revolutionary than the zombies we're getting now, who essentially don't mean anything. I mean, I love The Walking Dead for all its ups and downs and its flaws, and but the zombies in that show... They don't mean anything. They don't, you know, serve any kind of metaphorical or political purpose. Right. They, they're just a threat. They could be literally anything. Exactly. I, I mean, I'll get in a minute to stuff around the, the turn of the century with the, the zombie boom, um, where I think there was stuff going on. But certainly now it feels like the zombie's been emptied out of meaning. Whereas, as you said, baked into Romero's zombie vision is this kind of ripe political metaphor. I mean, you know... Dawn of the Dead, even now, is, jumps to the top of everyone's list of the most political horror movies ever made. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like the the epitome of a, of a of a socially aware horror movie. Yeah, and I read this review of your book on the Tor website that's really well written and insightful about a lot of things. But it makes this claim that your zombies are completely apolitical, and and to be honest. I find that argument just preposterous. I don't think you can write a book in, in this universe and them not have some political currency. Yeah. I could ask you what, you know, what is the politics? But it's a very broad question. That. I mean, it seems to me that you're kind of just using this global event to really skewer the entire aberration that is Western capitalist society. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's Ramirez movies are intensely political. Uh, and so the book is as well. I mean, the finale of the book, once you get, you know, all the way through however 700 pages of it, it, it is or whatever. I mean, it's got its roots back in the finale of Night of the Living Dead. I don't think George ever stopped being that young, angry protester uh, and somebody who was upset about where the world was, was headed and upset with, disappointed by... Um, humans inability to function together. So uh, yeah, it's I would I would agree with you um, that it's it's a very, very political book and that he would he would have wanted it no other way. I mean we're doing a lot of respectful service to George here and that and that's only right, but i I don't want your work to be overshadowed by the presence of of him, you know, sure. um, in this interview. So what I want to ask is obviously George's politics are infused throughout this. What about yours? Because when you read that ending, and, I, and I'm not going to give it away, um, it feels like as much as as you know the the Dead series was always influenced by 
contemporary politics. And there's a lot, as much as you've been asked time and time again about how odd it is that you brought this book out in the middle of COVID, mm-hmm. and I don't want to go there because I'm bored to tears of COVID metaphors. The thing that I couldn't escape is how prescient it is about what happened in the Capitol riots yeah. back in January. Yeah, You know, it, it. that's the thing that just jumped into my head about mob rule and what what can happen if one charismatic person leads scared people into doing stupid things i mean what 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 part of your politics or your political reality is is baked into this well i mean a lot of it uh for for better or for worse i think george's politics and mine line up pretty closely and i don't know if that's because he was kind of a guiding light for me as as a young person but uh it it wasn't a difficult thing to mesh. It just felt natural. There was certainly nothing about nothing of my politics um, that I had to, to tamp down or adjust. Um, it it all just felt like it naturally kind of fit together. You know, I don't think it's a very interesting answer, but it wasn't really a struggle. Whereas if you were working with um, or I were working with the text of somebody who, you know, I admired as an artist, but had differing mm. political views from, I think that would be a, a, a different kind of trick to pull off. But this, this felt kind of straightforward in that, you know, and I think, uh, his anger and disappointment, you know, has always sparked my own growing up. And I think I'm, I'm sort of a child of whatever he was a child of. I'm, I'm the, the grandchild of, of, um, the, the times that uh, George grew up in. When I was growing up, I mean, when I think about zombies, and basically I, I have this opinion that a zombie without some kind of allegorical purpose is a, is just a, an empty vehicle. I, I don't think it's a particularly scary monster if it doesn't have purpose, you know? No, it's not. It's a shambling thing that you can get away from. Yep. Um, and... What fascinated me in the early 2000s is how much zombies burst into life. I mean, you can't avoid puns in these kind of conversations, can you? Um, and for me, they, they were just representative of the, the, the supposed war on terror. We got a million zombie video games yeah. um, in the wake of 9-11, and a million zombie movies. And, and I became convinced that what they essentially were were training tools mm. to condition the populace to be comfortable with the wholesale slaughter of a faceless enemy. Yeah. I mean, that feels at least a, a legit interpretation. I think George, and it's certainly, well, I don't have to speak for George, I can speak for myself, that uh, entertainment in which zombies are just like mowed down by bullets just kind of upsets me. Um, yeah. I, I find it gross. I find it, it's like these are, you know, human beings and something has happened to them, sure. But when you come from the sort of Romero perspective, th- there's reasons to sympathize with the the zombie. And when it's played off for just kind of like thrills and um, or, or laughs or whatever, it just it leaves a, a bad taste in my mouth. I don't like it. Yeah, exactly that. Because just as the rest of the world was turning zombies into I really do think it was like, oh, look, zombie is, you know, a terrorist. They're all the same. They all think the same thing. They all want to kill us for no real reasonable reason. Just slaughter them all. I think that's what was going on. But interestingly, just as the rest of Hollywood was doing that, George came out with Land of the Dead, mm-hmm. in which he, he kind of said, no, more than ever, the zombie is somebody who is deserving of respect, who has, you know, agency who weirdly in that film cares more about his peers than the human beings in the enclosure. Yeah. And obviously that's something that you run with massively um, yeah. in this book, the sense of like zombie community and zombie togetherness. And, you know, these these amazing kind of almost like Joycean um, zombie POV chapters in which, you know, pronouns break down and, mm-hmm. and collective nouns break down and all that sort of stuff. And there's a sense that they kind of are a little bit more enlightened in their own dim way than we are. Oh, yeah. I don't, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, a lot of the, the final act of the book is sort of about the people trying to um, atone in some ways for the way they treated the zombies and mistreated the, the world in which the zombies were sort of, in a weird kind of way, protectors of. 
And you also make these really cool correlations between the zombies and and the humans. There's there's loads of stuff in the early chapters which are almost like puns on occasion, where a, um, a human character will t- want to devour somebody or mm-hmm. talk about the very cannibalistic terminology. Yep. And again, it's like you know these people are the the real monsters uh, because they're doing this these things through choice and, and knowingly. That's exactly right. You you sort of. Um... It's something that was definitely conscious for me to to describe the humans in ways that felt cannibalistic and to describe the zombies in ways that felt sort of tender. Mm. It took me a long time to get on board with it. And that's when I realized that I was conditioned by the other kind of zombie, like the empty mm-hmm. vehicle. You know, it, 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 I, I was like what is he doing? This is crazy. And then I thought back to Romero's films and realized, no, no, there is, there is not only precedent for this. It's like, this is canon in, in zombie yeah, world, right. but it's weird how far we've come from that. But the other thing that really kind of links the, the, the living and the living dead is, and forgive me if I'm making too much of this, but it, it struck me. There's a repeated use in this book of the word want. Hmm. So, Early on, you write, I'm just going to briefly quote this. This is when when you meet the first zombie in the autopsy room. And you write, the corpse had brought want slamming back into the world. His want to get closer to them, their reawakened want to survive. And that word comes back again and again in different contexts and different meanings. But it felt like some major part of your overall thesis that I couldn't quite pin down. Yeah, I mean it's that's um that's a good close read. Yeah, there are there are a few words that are used purposely in the book. Want is one of them. They and them is another uh pairing that is used very very pointedly. Um yeah, I think there's, you know, obviously I'm not I don't want to get too deeply into it, but uh yeah, there's a there's a sense that the zombies and this is explicated fairly explicitly later in the book, but I don't want to spoil it necessarily. Mm-hmm. But there's a sense that the zombies are here to return the Earth to a different state, to an, to an earlier state, when there was such a thing as a kind of pure desire for pure things. And we did want and not in the sense that we all wanted to stare down at our phones and shamble around like zombies. And you can kind of feel it when you think back to when you were a kid, if you're old enough, to like a pre-internet time, where there was sort of a feeling of, the feeling of wanting felt different than it does today. It was more visceral, um, more uh, physical in some way. Uh, so that's that's a piece of it. Um, but yeah, you, you're definitely onto something. That's really interesting because I can think back to when I wanted things with a. It was it wasn't just the want; the gratification was greater as well. Um, I I have this this running conversation. If I sat at a dinner table now or a, or a kind of dinner party, I always ask people if you can flick a switch and you can go back to either having the internet or the internet is turned off its entirety. Which would you do? Um, I always say I would definitely flip the switch because I want that want returned to me. I want that that primacy of it all returned to me. Yeah, boy. I mean, that's a, that's a great difficult question. Um, but yeah, I mean, we I, wouldn't I, be speaking. But um, yeah, I think. But I think you, you know, you could certainly make a great argument that the and it's the argument that George made until he died that the, that technology was going to kill us. And this sort of, uh, and the internet, which essentially he was incredibly idealistic about, um, and then very quickly changed his mind on, you know, he, he essentially, uh, thought exactly what that he thought what would happen is exactly what has happened. He thought that uh, the wrong voices would get amplified. Um, and it would, it would just accelerate the, the division that was already happening. I mean, you can't argue that the acceleration of division has gone through the roof and maybe there was a sort of internet glory days, but it seems like now we're in internet hell. I mean, my, my hope for that is that people are like five and six. Now I don't believe we'll have anywhere near the interest we have in the internet. 
Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it'll, I think it will have stopped being an exciting thing and will just be like having a phone line. It'll no longer actually. I don't think it'll project or propel things anywhere near as much as it does now. That's my kind of utopian hope because the way it's going, things are going shit quickly. Yeah, there's there's always there's always hope, and even uh, very cynical people like George and myself would 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 agree with that as well. I mean, that's actually it leads me to it to my next question because. One of the things you do with this book, it, it kind of reminded me in a weird way. It's an odd comparison to um, the TV show The Wire, mm-hmm. because the, the you know the the Wire used drugs as a way to look at all the infrastructure and the institutions in American life. You know, huh. every series was a different focus. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Yeah, I have. I have. Yeah, you do something similar in that you have these quite long chapters, as you said, like The Stand put in different parts of the US, you know, they're here, they're, they're everywhere, um, given a different perspective. But they're, they're often involved in some ways in, in institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got like an entire section set on a on a, a naval aircraft carrier, which is amazingly horrible. You've got Luis, who who works in as a medical professional, and he's tied into that infrastructure. And then you really take the media and journalism to school. And kind of you take it yeah. and beat it with a stick a little bit. Yeah. And that's my favorite part. Of the entire novel is the stuff in the newsroom with Chuck Corso. I think it's mm-hmm. brilliant. Um, because I really like that you don't seem to do it with any kind of liberal or conservative bias. Yeah. You just want to seem to want to give the entire anti-critical thinking a bit of a kicking. Yeah, yeah. It is it is interesting that, you know, I might have my own feelings about various um political leanings but yeah it didn't feel like that writing that section um it felt like a a wider broader blunter critique um that wasn't very wasn't specifically going after this type of person or that type of person there is a lot in the book about i don't know misinformation yeah and it's that that fractured lens on on a, a global crisis and and like obviously i said i wouldn't mention Kobe, but you've seen how that's happened now you know how just it is just everyone's opinion and everyone's like video camera and this is happening. This is not happening. And when it's something like the, the, the rising of the dead, it becomes, it becomes a really apt metaphor for it and a really horrible prospect. Yeah. And you would think that if the dead came back to life, we would all agree that it was happening, but now you can't even say that, you know, it could be happening right in front of you and someone would say, no, that's, that's not happening. And people would believe it. Oh, completely, yeah. If this happened, if there was some kind of, I don't know, I read Paul Tremblay's Survivor song, you know, let, let's get a little bit more slightly realistic. If there was some virus that was, you know, 28 days later, that kind of thing, it we'd all be dead before anyone actually agreed what was going on. Yeah, yeah. What I have got to ask, and what I was thinking all the way through, they're all so filled with kind of authentic industry speak and shorthand and jargon. Yeah. And I know it's a bit of a, obvious question but how on earth did you do all the research to make it sound that authentic because this is not like normal you know or we'll sketch what it's like yeah in a newsroom or in an autopsy room this is really kind of insider knowledge yeah well i just did a ton of research um i uh the tv section involved a lot of it the aircraft carrier section was one of the deepest dives of research that i've ever done uh, if I never hear the phrase aircraft carrier again, I'll be I'll be happy. That was difficult because not only did I not know anything about aircraft carriers going in, uh, you know, there's also all the military terminology and hierarchies, and there's there was just so much to learn. But that was a uh, you know that was a part of the book that was that George had put in there and um, was really fascinated by it and clearly done a lot of research on himself. Uh, so yeah, I just, you know, for the, for the aircraft carrier, I went out to New York where they have one docked and I got a private tour of the aircraft carrier to get a sense of, you know, scale and what, what it felt like inside. So I just did a lot of research. I always do a lot of research. Um, research is one of my, my favorite things to do. So, uh, I'm one of those people who, if I've got one chapter that mentions, something i'll read three books on it like i just hmm. i have to try to control myself sometimes because i'll just i'll just go down the rabbit holes of, of research um but i'm glad i'm glad it you know 
one of the things you realize as you write through a career is that the audience doesn't have to always totally understand what you're talking about. Um, they'll, they'll sense that you know what you're talking about and that'll convey a certain experience to them and make them kind of trust you. And this isn't a trick. This is just what I'm doing. Like I'm, I'm learning this stuff. I'm learning of these technical details of satellite systems that are on the aircraft carrier. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about them and I'm not going to fully explain them and you're not going to fully understand them, but you're going to sense that I understand them. Uh, and that's going to make you feel like you're in safe hands. Well, if I can compliment you for a moment, one of my pet hates with um, a book is when someone has clearly read a lot of research materials and they really want you to know it. Mm -hmm. Or when there's that sense that, you know, um, I've done all this research, it's not going to waste, it's going in the goddamn book. (laughs) You know, you get that sense a lot. And you don't do that in this. It feels incredibly natural. It, it, It feels like it's been written by somebody who, who fundamentally understands the subject, but also understands kind of like the human interaction with the subject. So when Luis is doing his autopsy, it feels like how people would talk about those things. And as you say, you may have made every single bit of that jargon up. I don't know, but it reads as authentic. So yeah, if I can give you the biggest compliment about the book, I think it's that because it could have so easily been something that was very different and very kind of info dump heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Like you do all this research and the way I do it, you know, I have the reams of research next to me, but they're going to be applied when and if necessary. You know, they're not all already plugged in. It's like when the character stumbles across the need for that information, then I will insert it. So going back to that wide lens approach that you take, you know, in the, you know, it's a, it's a global perspective, even though it centers on the US, there is a sense this is a global problem. It's a full history of the zombie era was that always the intention to really widen that scale because Romero's films are often concentrated on Mm -hmm. kind of microcosmic immediate threats yeah this was I mean this was his intent Uh, I think he was like a lot of artists working in various mediums but especially film you know I think I think directors they, they have this hankering to do things that are bigger and grander and splashier and he his career was filled with almost getting to that level and then something always happening famously obviously day of the dead was originally going to be much bigger than it was land of the dead even got cut down uh, as far as budget goes um he he just nobody would really trust him with a ton of money perhaps wisely because he was such an idiosyncratic guy in some ways and he and he did his best movies on a smaller scale i i believe uh but he had that hankering. So I think the book pretty clearly, um, and he might have just outright said it in a few places, was his attempt to have you know, an infinite budget. He wanted to go big uh, at least once. And he wanted to start at the beginning and just, just as in his words, let it all hang out. Um, so he wanted it this way. And knowing his ambitions for it, that that pretty clearly directed me on how to approach it. Um, you know, like I said, we had these segments of the book, and I could have just sort of glued them together in some smaller way, and been like, okay, here's your here's your three hundred page book or whatever. Uh, but that wasn't what he wanted. It, he wanted to to he wanted a doorstopper. He wanted something that kind of ended his part of the conversation anyway. So I, I tried to deliver that. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of the final word because it's this rich panoply of um, social issues. You know, the zombies don't mean any one thing in this. They're, it's not a racial, it's, well, it's not just a racial metaphor. It's just not, not just an economic metaphor. It's kind of everything that is disturbed in contemporary life mm-hmm. and you filter it through this shambling undead horde and it, it does feel like the final word of, of what the zombie can I suppose what it can really be and represent up to now I'm sure we'll have something else in the future but what has intrigued me since closing this book is this structure that you you explained this right at the start when I asked you to summarize the the novel because okay it's a doorstopper and it is this 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 grand overarching narrative 
But you still have that Romero-esque immediacy. So for people who haven't read it yet, you start with these really focused sections in the immediate aftermath. And then the book ends, as you said, with a third with a third that is even more immediate. It's kind of like one day. Mm-hmm. But that whole middle era, that, that, that the bulk of time that the characters would have spent living and adapting to the zombie world, that happens off sort of off page, and yep. we almost see it entirely in these brief sketches and in these interviews and that are being curated by a certain character. And I loved it because it felt like getting snippets of info in much the way that you probably would in a world without the internet or without telecommunications. But it's also, I'll be honest, frustrating because you want to know more mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. more. You don't know everything, you know. And I thought it was quite an unusual choice. And what prompted that kind of weird structure where all the emphasis is on the beginning and the end? Yeah, I think it's, um, it is a bold choice. Uh, I, I think a lot of that, that stuff that happened in that sort of middle 14 years is in one, on one hand sort of covered by Romero's films. So that was intentional to sort of leave a gap for them. And secondly, it just felt like the territory of so many zombie films, the, mm-hmm. the sort of mid apocalypse type uh, stuff. I, I just think it's been so overdone. And I don't think from the, from the manuscript that George left behind that his interest didn't seem to be there. And my interest wasn't really there. Um, I wanted to kind of avoid the part that most people would head toward those that that period where you're just grueling and grinding along and life is uh, miserable. We we've, we've seen so much of that, that misery period. It's what's going, it's what's happening on the surface of day of the dead. You know, we're, we're down with the scientists and the military people in the bunker, but what's happening on the surface is sort of where, where a lot of zombie movies and stories take place. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it felt, it felt more of a, a choice to me to, to skip all that and a kind of thrilling choice and a, a way to use the character who's in that middle section as the keeper of stories so that there's, there's all this, uh, creation and all this, all this, uh, activity that happens during those 14 years. But for our purposes, you know, George and I are using them in the book as, um, records of, of life, you know, like to aid in the society becoming, accustomed or becoming accepting of the the life that they had and lost and are living now. And that, you know, it can be an, an archive that we can learn from, you know, so maybe all these zombie movies and all these things we've seen that take place in the kind of apocalyptic wasteland are something that at the end of the day we can learn from. And it's also important to note and, in our in those fourteen years in the book, the sort of apocalyptic waste time wasteland type part, it's also a time of great beauty because the people have been shoved to the side, and the uh, the planet regrows, and so you know the world becomes this beautiful flower filled um, sort of Eden again that we have been tossed out of as as if we're all Adams and Eves, um, and I think that was key too in in sort of envisioning that like just you know letting that middle space breathe and letting it be something beautiful that that we're not a part of because we ruined it yeah and thus we come to the ending of the novel Um, and obviously i'm not going to ruin any specific plot points here but suffice to say you know the, the the what i what i would have called the typical relationship between the living and the living dead gives way to something wholly different but as i've said i think that maybe isn't so typical it's maybe my misunderstanding of zombie canon um but you know the the books are much more abstract and philosophical treatment than i expected Mm -hmm. and i still can't decide and and it's odd to finish a book and not know this i can't decide and i can't decode whether it's a hopeful ending yeah or a sort of tragic wholly avoidable tragic ending yeah, I know. You've got this beautiful <laughs> final image, but it comes just after a scene of defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. 
So without, you know, asking you to give anything away, how am I supposed to feel when, we, when I close the book? You know, am I supposed to have hope for the human race or or nothing but the opposite? Yeah, I love, I love, I mean, granted, I'm partly responsible for them, but I love that last paragraph. Mm. Um, and especially those last, like, maybe three sentences. Uh, because <laughs> you don't, it, I guess the feeling you're left with is, uh, I guess you feel conflicted, you know, and it's a weird feeling to end the book on, but it felt, man, it felt so right. And granted the final sentence came from George. So, so that was sort of in place, but uh, you know, the sentences preceding it were mine. And, you know, sometimes you just write something and uh, I mean, I, I think I could excuse this logically uh, why, why it ends the way it does. But also, there sometimes you write things and it just feels right. Like, like that's it. That's that's how it ends. And uh, the feeling that I feel putting down those final words is is what I know most people are going to feel when they read them, and they're going to be kind of trapped. They're going to be kind of caught between this sense of grace and beauty and this sense of sinking despair, and you know, and wondering how it can all exist in a single line in a single like handful um i mean as as blurry and abstract as it sounds that that feels like modern life to me that feels like how how we live in this in this moment of like disaster and gorgeousness and um anytime we you know shut our eyes at night or read the final line of this book it's sort of a similar feeling it's like it just continues on and then maybe we'll wake we'll open our eyes again the next day and it's we're going to go through it all over again. Well, that seems a perfect way to kind of end the conversation about the book, really, because, well, I won't say why, but for anyone who reads it, yeah, it, it ends on, on quite the note and the sense that we may have to go, go through it all again, that endless repetition, maybe the, uh, the true, the true mm -hmm. horror and beauty of it, I suppose. Right. To ask from your book to another, if you could recommend a, a book for my listeners to read and, and tell us why, Sure, sure. Um, you know, obviously, I, I do get this question a lot, and I try to, I try to mix it up. Um, my sort of standard answer is Kathy Koja's The Cipher, which is one of my favorite books of all time. But I think I'm going to go today with a, a a book called Plague Dogs by Richard <laughs> Adams. Yes, and uh, so this is Richard Adams, of course, is best known for writing Watership Down. Um, which was a book that was really important to me as a kid. Um, and not really even as a kid, I guess more of, more of as a high school. I read it in high school. Um, and all and it had a big impression on me. I think partly because it was this sort of Lord of the Rings epic done with bunny rabbits. And there's something about the, the, the mixing of those two elements that just blew me away. Uh, Plague Dogs is another book he wrote that's essentially, again, involving animal main characters. But this time they are um, two dogs that are uh, escaped from a laboratory where they're being experimented on for, we don't know what, but, you know, drugs or cosmetics or something. Um, and so they're being, you know, more or less tortured, you know, for the purposes of human convenience and they escape and one of them is brain damaged from the its brain experiments and soon the the entire countryside is after them because they think they've they've got some disease which i don't believe they do but they, they it doesn't it doesn't really matter the point is everyone's hunting them and it's a uh just devastating book it is uh just crushingly sad so it's not going to be for everyone if if you're, you know, if hearing about, you know, talking dogs in danger is like makes you just want to run the other way, then definitely run the other way. But I think it's um, it's a book that is inspiring to me uh, because it takes so many risks and it just is kind of unforgettable. Thank you for that. I will never, ever read it. All right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, no, no, I, I know. I, I will read it because, I, well, I like to torture myself. But I, 
I, I'm as as hard as they come when it when it comes to kind of horror and stuff like that. Like I'm pretty impenetrable. Yeah. But as you know, I've, I've talked at length on this show now about I, I I bought a dog. It seems weird to say bought. I um I I gained a dog yeah. about a year ago, and yeah. I my entire perspective on on living creatures has changed. It's been quite profound. The effect on me. I've, I've kind of gone largely vegetarian and stuff because of it. And oh, that's that's amazing. I, I find myself tearing up at daft things. I think it's kind of like a pared down version of what a new father goes through. Um, and I realise what this sounds like. Mm-hmm. I really do. But the thought of reading something where bad things happens to dogs. I think when you tweeted that about the plague dogs this week, I actually responded to you saying, no, mate, I'm having enough trouble with year six, which anyone who has read The Living Dead will understand yeah. is something awful happening to, to animals. Yeah, so that is one I'll have to kind of tiptoe into very, very delicately. But anyone else, give it a read. Let me know what you think. But it may not be for me just yet. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it's not for a lot of people, so that, that's all right. Actually, this ties into the last question because, I mean, that possibly would have been the answer I would give to this, but what truly scares you? You know, I, I think the the human body itself is what scares me. Like, if I think too hard about, like, how we're built it uh, freaks me out like that we're just this kind of gelatinous hmm. bag of squishy organs and a a sort of elastic hide and we're sort of being puppeted around on these like bone sticks i think i think my answer is sort of you know the sort of fits into like the genre of body horror like i think there's something really existentially disturbing once you start thinking about yourself as a as a purely physical object so yeah what scares me is like that like thinking about oneself as patties of meat and it's i find it extremely upsetting (laughs) really um and so i think it's why i sort of have a phobia of doctors and hospitals is that it's just it's too powerful of a reminder of how like squishy and vulnerable we are you know like it doesn't it doesn't matter who you are just like a a pen into your throat or something like that you know a single motion of of uh, flicking your hand on a steering wheel uh, a quarter of an inch and going into the opposite lane like it's so we're so easy to destroy we're so easy to warp and and uh, bend and blow and fill with tumors we're just we're just we're just a mess of disgusting problems that um, life is generally about trying not to remember that on a daily basis, on a minute by minute, second by second basis. I think that's the key to life is forgetting, forgetting what we at the end of the day really are. Yeah. What did you say? Bags of organs in elastic hide or something. That's, that's going to be the, the title of this, uh, this episode. <laughs> I, I do wonder if the fact that you watch Night of the Living Dead at six may have something to do with uh, that underlying phobia about us all being squishy bags of walking mints because, you know. Yeah, who knows? I mean, my my feelings about Night Living Dead at that age were certainly not ones of fear. You know, it got scarier the older I got. But at first, it was just this campy movie that my mom liked that was on TV. You know, But, you know, those things seep in. Well, I mean, if they did seep in, they, they led to the the magnum opus of the living dead. So I'm happy with your trauma. That's fine. <laughs> Honestly, it's a, it is a truly at times breathtaking book in its prose and its scale. Uh, and I think anyone who is a bit jaded by, as I said, the emptiness of contemporary zombie horror will, will get a real kick from this as well as getting, you know, satisfied by all the nasty, gruesome stuff that is supposed to happen too. So yeah, thank you for writing it. Daniel, and thank you for talking scared. Hey, my my pleasure. Thanks. I can't work out how I would have felt in Daniel's shoes. Being asked to write The Living Dead as an uber fan of Romero, it's the equivalent of me being asked to write the concluding book to the Dark Tower sequence or to pen a sequel to It. I imagine the thrill is incredible, but God, the responsibility you, you must feel. It, 
It must be so hard to ever think that you're doing a good enough job. Maybe that's just me. I'm a painful perfectionist when it comes to my own stuff that I'm failing at, let alone someone else's life's work. But Daniel does a fantastic job with this. Like I said, I'm no Romero expert. I know more about the walking dead than I do the living dead. It's just a strand of horror cinema that passed me by. But it does mean that reading this book, set in that specific mythology, makes the zombie feel weirdly fresh and, and different. Because Romero zombies are different to the lumps of meat that we've become used to. And, and what Daniel does with them is very, very different. It all goes in a much more philosophical, ideas-based direction than I expected. I assumed The Living Dead would be this big, action-packed, 80s throwback horror epic. And it is epic, but in a totally different way. It's an unexpectedly cerebral piece of work with some properly striking prose, way above the level I thought it would be. It's not always the easiest book to read because of that prose style on occasion, and also because of some of the choices that Daniel makes in telling the story. The things that I found really interesting and surprising and revolutionary may be things that irritate fans of more mainstream zombie fiction or who went into this wanting the book that I thought it was. Yeah, it may not be everyone's cup of tea, and if you've grown up thinking that The Walking Dead or 28 Days Later, or Wreck, or those other great post-millennial zombie horror movies, if you've grown up thinking they are what a zombie narrative is, then you may find where this book ends up in its final moments to be way out of left field. But it's certainly memorable, and it, and it makes an impact. As we said, it's out 7th September from Tor Nightfire, and if you're in the UK, you do have to wait a little bit longer for that paperback release. It's 14th of October here in the UK. Now, you could just go for the hardback, but trust me, it's a big old book, and reading the hardback nearly sent me to physiotherapy, so yeah, make your choices, take your chances. <laughs> I would be really keen to hear what you think of Daniel's book, though. The language, the style, the ending. From what I've seen on social, it, it has split opinion. I'm, I'm in the positive camp, but what about you? And what do you think about my theory of the post-millennial zombie as terrorist metaphor? It's a theory I baked up in the midst of the zombie boom back around 2010. It seemed to me that the idea of, of a faceless, meaningless, dehumanised mass enemy really suited the zeitgeist when the powers that be were busy drone striking and training us all to see our cultural others as evil and faceless and, and yet as dehumanised. Libtard, I hear you cry. Well, well, actually not you. You're all very nice. But Libtard, I hear our collective racist uncles cry. <laughs> but honestly, go and watch all the films that came out around then and play the video games. It's hard not to see some kind of pattern, some kind of propaganda at work. I actually wrote an entire book chapter about it and I'll try and dig it out and stick it on the Patreon for those who want to read it. That isn't supposed to be a painful segue to Patreon, by the way. But whilst we're on the topic, let's do that bit now and then talk about a book that we briefly mentioned on the show. Yeah, you know by now, if you want extra episodes, such as the bonus chat with Chuck Wendig, Ronald Malfi and Grady Hendrix that went live yesterday, all you have to do is sign up for Patreon, either via the show notes or directly at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. There's a fair bit of content up there now and more coming week by week. A few new people joined the Patreon fam in the last week. Hello to David and Sinead. Thanks so much for supporting. You brought a smile to my face at the end of a terribly rough week of work. So thanks from me for your patronage and from my wife for cheering me up over the weekend. But yeah, as I said, let's talk books. I don't always get the chance to refer back to the books that we mentioned in the conversation. Um, I used to do it a lot in these endnotes, and, I, and I've kind of stopped doing that for some reason. They still go in the show notes for your reference, but let's talk about one that Dan mentioned this week in particular. Kathy Colger's The Cipher. Who's read it? If not, you absolutely must. It comes from that weird time in the early 90s when horror was breaking free of the Stephen King shackles and doing weird things, but not getting the recognition it deserved because most people still wanted 80s Stephen King. 
The Cypher is this incredibly weird novel that's kind of like a proto-House of Leaves, but nowhere near as inaccessible. It's about this depressed guy who finds a weird hole in his storage room, and he calls it the fun hole, and he starts experimenting with it. And by that I mean he starts feeding things to it. And yeah, that sounds weird, right? Well, it only gets a lot, lot weirder from there. Weirder than you could possibly imagine. Thinking about it, I must invite Cathy on the show to talk about the cipher, as well as some of her newer stuff. And actually, it does beg a question. How do you guys feel about me having what we'll call legacy guests on the show? For example, I'm having Peter Straub on in December for this winter special all about his snowy classic, Ghost Story. But do you prefer me to feature brand new books, or are you happy with guests regardless of the publication schedule? Let me know, because it it could impact how we do things going forward. Right, though, let's rifle through these last bits so we can get on with our week. Come say hi on Twitter, at TalkScaredPod. Email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com, and check out the Patreon. If you want to hear a little bit more about me, and God knows why you would, but if you do, then I'm actually the guest on the latest episode of Ink Heist podcast. Due to their recording time, it was... 3am when we had that chat so my guard is thoroughly down and I get quite candid and you can find that via all the usual podcast places and Rich and Shane do a fantastic job with Inkeis so so go listen. Otherwise onwards to next week when we'll be discussing Aaliyah Whiteley's ever so strange short fiction From the Neck Up. Until then though, run don't walk, aim for the brain and in a crisis Find a mall. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.